there's continued push for updated estimates when it comes to the cost of hosting FIFA World Cup matches here in Vancouver. In June of 2022, the province estimated costs of uh, hosting uh, between 240 and 260 million dollars. However, that was when Vancouver was slated to host five games, not seven. And of course, as we all know, inflation rates have risen since then. Uh, meanwhile, a recent report to the Toronto Mayor's Executive Committee showed that current projections. Uh, estimate operating and capital costs which would be incurred locally in Toronto will be around $380 million, $80 million higher than the uh, initial projection. Now, there's only one reference to FIFA 2026 in the most recent uh, released provincial budget, uh, and that fell under the broad category of ten, uh, contingencies, and that's $10.6 billion in contingencies over the next three years. Joining me now to talk a little bit about budgeting for FIFA World Cup for 2026 is Lana Popham, BC's Minister of Tourism, Arts, Culture and Sport. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us today. Hi, happy to be here. Good to chat. It's been a while. Last time I think we chatted, you were a Minister of Agriculture, so this is a bit of a, <laughs> no, just thinking about that. This is a bit of a change <laughs> for you. So let's get to the numbers first and foremost. When can we sure. expect uh, new numbers or updated numbers uh, for citizens? Well, we're working on that right now, and I think we'll be able to put something out in the next week or two. Uh, and what things are you looking at that, that, that would change from the initial investment or initial uh, estimate of 240 yeah. to $260 million? So it's a great question, and I think off the top you, you mentioned uh, just inflation in general. So we've got that to consider. But when we, uh, when we won the bid, we, um, we didn't know how many games we were going to get. Uh, and so we are like two weeks ago, there was a lot of excitement in the air as soon as we realized that we were going to get seven of seven games. Two of those are knockout games, which means they're games that people don't want to miss. So that means thousands of more folks coming into the province to to be part of that excitement. And uh, when you look at the overall economic benefit of this, it means that, uh, you know, different parts of our our hospitality sector, like the restaurant industry, for example, will be able to have uh, uh, numbers that go well into July, which really extends the stays of a lot of these folks. So hospitality sector, hotels, uh, we're going to try and make sure that there's campaigns that connect the arts and culture sector to visitors that are coming. Of course, the outdoor rec center uh, sector. We've got a lot of planning that we have to do. And But right now, we're trying to uh, tie down some of those numbers. So with two extra games, it means that there's extra costs, for example, security. But um, there's also more economic benefit. So we are literally running those numbers right now. So is it just security, the extra security, that will be uh, the challenge? Uh, because there's been talk potentially uh, that, look, uh, there is still upgraded upgrade needed for BC Place from uh, the uh, yeah. suites uh, elevators, uh, ramp upgrades, which I guess the grade may be too steep, which would be an update for those and well needed. And we should be doing that, especially for those who are in wheelchairs. Yeah. But it also, yeah. to my understanding, there is talk of connecting BC Place to the Park Hotel. Now, I'm not sure if that's a permanent structure or a temporary one. Do we have a sense of if, if those costs uh, are part of the conversation then? Uh, it's all part of the conversation right now. So BC Place is working hard at running their numbers. Um, but that's a, that's a pretty exciting part of the legacy that gets left behind after FIFA leaves. So you're right. The ramps that were created 
40 years ago mm-hmm. when BC Place was, was built. Um, they are too steep for wheelchair users. And so having uh, additional lifts built into BC Place is going to help us not just for FIFA, but for every other event that is being held there. I was actually at the Rugby Sevens this past weekend. Did you get to the Rugby Sevens? I didn't get to the Rugby Sevens. I'm going oh, to the Whitecaps this weekend. So. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll see you there. But So the Rugby Sevens is super fun. And I was... Uh, standing around right around one of the, the elevators that exists now. And a gentleman rolled off and he told me he was from Seattle and he had come up for the weekend, but he had just waited an extraordinary uh, amount of time to catch one of these elevators so he could leave the building. And it just really demonstrated for me why we need more than two elevators in BC Place. This also applies to uh, the bathrooms. So, um, the BC Place currently brings in porta-potties on the main floor because we don't have uh, bathroom connections down there. BC Place is pretty incredible in how it tries to reduce its footprint. Right now, the current bathrooms that are there use rainwater that is collected on the top of BC Place. And we would really like to see bathrooms uh, installed that can also use that technology so uh, the footprint gets reduced as much as possible. So the, those, those sorts of things are really incredible legacy projects. So, but in regards to even connecting, let's say, the Park Hotel to BC Place, and I don't know if that's a permanent structure. I mean, when I hear this, I also see the potential for just costs going up. And the fact, in, in, the, in the case of Toronto, we've gone from 300 to 380 million. That's a significant increase. Could we see something like that? in Vancouver, uh, an $80 million increase because we are actually hosting more games, meaning more security, and some of these things have to be done. I understand that. But $80 million seem possible in regards to extra costs? Well, I think what we've said and made it pretty clear over the last couple of years that it's not a blank check. So there might be uh, ideas that are coming up that would be nice to do, but you have to weigh it out against, you know, this is, we're, we're looking at this through the lens of the taxpayers, and uh, I don't think anybody is in the mood to be overspending on anything right now. Mm-hmm. So um, we're making sure that the, the decisions that we're making are responsible decisions. Um, but we do know that there's probably a billion dollars worth of economic activity that will happen from the time the game's start to five years out as tourists return uh, after having a taste of our beautiful province. We're going to see about probably about 400,000 visitors during FIFA's uh, time here. And then we'll see about a million visitors come back. So um, we do know that there's investments that are going to make our province better after FIFA leaves. But we also need to keep in mind that uh like I said, it's not a blank check. Uh, do you worry, though, that you know, FIFA is going to have certain requirements? I mean, I, I think they're even requiring a cer- certain certain type of seed for the grass turf that we're going to have uh, for those seven games. That's that's part and parcel of these big events. Uh, the Olympic yeah. Committee does the same thing. But do you worry yeah. that a year from now they come back for even more requests, which means more dollars? I mean, can you as a government draw a line in the sand and say, OK, here are your requests. We're going to match them. This is our budget. So be it. Just don't come back to us six months or a year from now saying, plus, 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 we want all these things done as well. Can you do that as, yeah. a, as a government? Yeah, it, it, we can. And I feel quite good about our relationship with FIFA right now because we've been meeting with them, uh, 
you know, it, it, things are ramping up or meeting more frequently. There's technical visits that are happening and that have happened. I'm hoping to join one of those next week. But yeah, I think definitely, you know, there's going to be decisions that are made uh, with partners. And then, you know, we, we go forward from those decisions. But uh, one of the things that I think is interesting and changes the financial uh, opportunities for our province is that back um well, after 2018, there's a new program that FIFA has introduced called the Commercial Asset Program. So this commercial asset pro- program uh, translates in more opportunities for us to get revenue from uh, FIFA being here. And so th- there's decisions around what that looks like that are being made over the next few months. And that's really also going to change our numbers as far as what we're going to get back. So there's, it's, it's a complicated equation. And so I, I am hearing like, what's the number? How much is it going to cost? But there's literally many, many different, uh, tables at work right now trying to work those numbers. And I don't want to put something out that's not going to be correct. I'd rather have something that we're confident in over the next couple weeks. Uh, I'm going to be absolutely willing to share that and uh, complete transparency. And do you, can you, are you able to put out the contract, make make the contract public uh, with FIFA, you and City Hall, Vancouver City Hall, can you release that contract with FIFA? Is, is that possible? I don't believe that we can do that. I think there's an NDA, but we are certainly able to share the commitments we've made with taxpayer dollars. Minister, as always, uh, thank you for your time. Look forward to chatting with you very soon when those new numbers come out. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. Well, I could shoot all the Blue Jays I wanted if I could hit them. But to remember, it was a sin to kill a mockingbird. Why? Well, I reckon because mockingbirds don't do anything but make music for us to enjoy. need people's gardens, don't nest in the corn cribs. They don't do one thing but just sing their hearts out for us. That is what you're listening to there is a scene uh, from uh, the movie To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, today we learned that the Surrey School District has quietly decided to remove Harper Lee's 1960 Pulitzer Prize winning novel To Kill a Mockingbird, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie, John Ball's In the Heat of the Night and of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck from the list of books recommended for students grade 10 and older. Uh, it's not a book ban, and I want to clarify that, but they have pulled those four classic books Books from the recommended reading curriculum. Uh, and he, I just want to quote uh, uh, the spokesperson for the school district. This is the Vancouver Sun today, uh, Ratinder Matthew, who said, quote, we did a comprehensive review of these resources that determined that the merits of these novels do not outweigh the potential trauma and harm they may cause to some students. Uh, and that was uh, in an article uh, in today's uh, Vancouver Sun. Joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, this story is our show contributor, Jerry Mir Judson. Good afternoon. Well, good afternoon, Jazz. Now, did you read some of these books in school? I did indeed. I read To Kill a Mockingbird in grade nine English um, in Alberta, and I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I think, or sorry, I read um, to, Of Mice and Men, rather, in grade 10 or grade 11, something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that they are classics for a reason. They're great and beautiful books, mm-hmm. certainly. But uh, I almost, I almost understand 
the mm-hmm. the the pulling of the 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 removing of the recommended reading. Although, yes. yeah. Now, To Kill a Mockingbird is a book that about uh, in the article it said about a ra- about race written by a white person with a white protagonist. It follows a young girl's awakening to the racial inequality in her small Anna, Alabama town as her lawyer father defends a black man falsely accused of rape. Uh, the, I guess the issue here is that uh, it's written by a, a non-black author and it contains, uh, I guess, racial, racist slurs uh, that, of course, uh, are inappropriate. Most certainly. Um, I, I think I still have To Kill a Mockingbird in my office at home. Good. Uh, I was just yeah. thinking about that, right? Now, uh, earlier today, uh, I just want to you know, provide some perspective to this. Nicole Kaler, who is a Surrey education advocate and has a child in Surrey High School, uh, spoke to our Rob Fay, who was hosting Joe Bennett show today. Uh, Ms. Kaler is also black, and she commented on today's announcement. Let's take a listen. I had an incident with one of my kids when they were in grade nine with one of the books on those lists, and absolutely, when he was forced to, um, you know, read that as part of his English curriculum, I was very upset by it and shocked that a book that I read in the 70s was still part of the curriculum and being dealt with the same way. So I'm really, really happy that they've made this move. I'm glad uh, we played that uh, uh, that comment from uh, Ms. Kaler. Uh, what do you think about this? I mean, it's a classic, uh, but if you're a child reading that in yeah. 2024... Mm-hmm. Is that something we should be keeping? There have been books written since, you know, and they are there are recommended books that uh, include that are you know about racism, about uh, about these sorts of things that contain the same themes, but they are from racialized authors, and I think that that provides that sort of. I'm not explaining racism to you as a white person and using these slurs and stuff as a white novelist. So mm-hmm. I understand that. I also think that um, there's maybe some demographic demographics to consider because it, uh, I mean, in Surrey in 2021, at least, um, I looked up the demographics of folks living in Surrey and 38% of people are South Asian, 11% of people are East Asian, 10% are Southeast Asian, only 30% of are, are folks of European origin. So it's maybe we don't necessarily, if the, if the children in the schools are represented thusly, maybe we don't necessarily need to be telling these particular stories. Yeah, I just hope it doesn't turn into one of the, oh, it's a book ban. No, you know, God, the, no. the woke have taken over and all that sort of thing. I, I hope mean, not. It's, it's gentler just... than a ban. They're just exactly, they're taking it away and recommending others. I think you can recommend other books without necessarily taking them, taking these ones away, I yeah. guess. Cause, and any teacher who wants to teach these books still can. They just have to submit a request and kind of in, and substantiate why it is necessary. So I, and I think that that's a tough argument to make as to why you need to say, you know, instead of instead do I need to do in the heat of the night instead of, you know, beloved or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what argument you would make for that, but uh, I, you can, you can still as a teacher try. We had to read in, in the heat of the night and then they played the movie. Oh yeah, as well, and uh, it was really interesting when growing up and and watching the movie, especially after you read it. Uh, I learned a lot, but I guess the era has changed, and there's greater complexity, nuance, subtlety, all that stuff that's needed to, to explain race today, potentially. Um, but I don't know. I, I'm still a, a bit uneasy with it. I don't know why. And I don't want this turning into, as I said, the woke of are taking over, or B, your kids are soft today, and and you know this is just. 
there's some harsh realities out there. Uh, but I guess there's a probably a more modern way to to uh, to articulate that and to tell that story through the eyes of folks uh, who are racialized minorities, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because you know people are so, and a bunch, the the recommended books. A lot of them are more modern. Um, so there's a couple books in there from 2017 that are gathered yeah, touching on these themes and they're telling these stories just maybe in a more nuanced way than these yeah. classic white novelists. But yeah. I'm saying that of Mice and Men is one of my favorite books of all time. And so I'm saying like, oh, I guess. But thinking back, I'm like, yeah, it was very challenging to read. And I'm a white person. So, you know, I can't imagine um, having to then, you know, go through that as someone who's racialized. I literally cannot imagine that. And so it would be, I'm assuming, very troubling to read for some kids. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> to be made to read and, you know, sitting in a class and having that sort of authority forced upon you and you're looking at this book with these points of view and perspectives and characters that were representative of viewpoints that people had and still have, I can see how that would uh, not be very easy to take at age 13, 14. Yeah, I, I just look at a, a headline like that and I just go, oh God, you know, in a polarized political environment, they're going to go, what's next, Shakespeare? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of it because it's too hard. No, kids need to learn where the word elbow comes from. Dang it. Cheapers. Prime Minister Mulroney, who, as you know, uh, passed away today at the age of 84. He was Canada's 18th Prime Minister. He uh, certainly steered the country through a lot of uh, change uh, nationally and globally. He died today um, at the age of 84. Uh, Mr. Mulroney, as we all know, was a gifted public speaker. He helped uh, broker a free trade deal with the United States, push for constitutional reforms to secure a Quebec signature on Canada's supreme law, an effort that ultimately failed. He introduced the national sales tax to raise money against the ballooning budget deficits, privatized some crown corporations, and of course stood strongly against racial apartheid in South Africa. He did leave office, uh, not the most popular uh, of, of leaders, uh, but he the changes he brought in uh, were significant for this country. The free trade agreement that I had mentioned was just one. Here is Prime Minister Brian Mulroney debating Liberal leader John Turner uh, in the 1998 election. Take a listen. I happen to believe that you've sold us out I happen to believe that once you, Mr. And Turner, just, 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 just one second, once any you nation, do not, you do once, not have a monopoly once, on patriotism, once, once, and I resent the fact that your implication that only you are a Canadian. I, I want to tell you that once, I come from a Canadian once, family and once, I love Canada, and that's any, why I did it to promote prosperity. Country, and don't you impugn my motives? Once Don't a country you my yields or anyone else's. Once a country yields its its energy. We have not Once done a it. country yields its agriculture. Wrong Once again. a country opens itself up to a subsidy war with the United States Wrong on again. terms of definition, then the political ability... That was quite the debate. Uh, a different time, a uh, different era, uh, but uh, Brian Mulroney uh, passed away today at the age of 84. Well, Bob Bransford is a longtime political uh, uh, activist. He now works in the urban development uh, business. He met Mr. Mulroney over 42 years ago today. Bob Ransford joins us now. Bob, thank you for your time. Hi, Josh. Hi. Uh, what goes to your mind when you listen to that debate and, and in your time in Ottawa uh, as well during that, that era? Um, <laughs> Brian Mulroney was a man who loved this country more than anyone that I ever met. And he understood Canada better than anyone I ever met in politics. And um, his loss is a big one for me personally because I was there with him 
the night that he was elected leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, and I was with him through his, a good part of his government and have kept in touch with him since those years, over 40 years ago. And I knew this day was coming soon. I was afraid it was going to come before his birthday on March 21st. And unfortunately, when I heard the news about a half an hour ago, it was um, it was sad for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your interaction and relationship like in Ottawa, because I know you worked there uh, during that time, uh, how f- what was he like behind the scenes? He was a very um, much a people person, uh, and he was very much what a leader is. He he would set his um, mind to what he wanted to accomplish. He was good at communicating that to the people that were working with him and what he expected would be done. He was a great team leader. Um, I had the privilege of working with uh, the first uh, caucus chair for the biggest um, caucus ever elected in Canadian history, which was Brian Mulroney's Conservative Government Caucus. I worked with Jerry St. Germain, who was the caucus chair. And, uh, you know, keeping that many members of Parliament in line when you have the biggest majority ever in Canadian history and you're making huge changes in the country over a short period of time is no easy task. But, you know, Brian Mulroney understood people and he really focused on building relationships with people, whether it's his members of his caucus, the MPs that were elected with him. He used to say, you know, all of you and me paid the same admission price to get here, so I'm no different than you are, and I have to respect you as one of my peers. And he would say that to them often. Mm-hmm. And um, he was a very loyal man. He, I learned from him loyalty. He he was a person who was loyal to people that he had known all his life. He's loyal. To, he was loyal to me. I, I spoke with him at least twice a year for sure. I spoke with him on June 11th every year, which was the anniversary of his election as leader of the Progressive Conservative Party. I was in the room with him with about six other people before he went out to give his speech to the delegates at that convention in Ottawa. And he called each and every one of us on the anniversary of that day every year since. And I usually spoke with him on his birthday on March 21st. He And, and that means he's talking to someone that, you know, worked with him over 35, 40 years ago, and he remained loyal to those people that were around him then. Uh, Bob, I was just mentioning off the top, of, you know, some of the things that Prime Minister Mulroney was involved in, uh, you know, brokering the free trade deal, uh, you know, raising, uh, introducing a national sales tax, uh, you know, strand, standing strong against racial apartheid in South Africa. Uh, some of these things, uh, when you look at them to the, with the benefits of hindsight, are great things that he's done. But sometimes in the middle, when you're in the middle of this political battle, they're not always fun. Uh, you know, people aren't going to like the GST, but it allowed us to at least, uh, you know, focus on our finances as a country. Um, what was it like behind the scenes when, when the opposition was so strong, uh, whether it be Charlottetown, Meech, GST, whatever it may be, even free trade, as we heard in that debate? What was it like behind the scenes with him when there's so much pressure bearing down on him as a leader and and his supporters and his staff? What was it? What was he like behind the scenes? He was very much the team leader. He was the one that um, when people were down and, and they were getting beat up back home when they'd go back to their constituency, he'd be the one there that his his office was open in the Langevin block. If, if a member of parliament was down and, and felt that, you know, they were having real trouble dealing with their electorate because of the policies that were being advanced and their mood was really, 
you know, disrupted and they were really concerned about things. They were 15 minutes with the prime minister on a one minute call to say, look, MP needs to talk to you. He would sit down with them and he'd hear them out and he'd, and he'd explain to them what we were trying to achieve and more importantly, why we were trying to achieve it. And, you know, he said at the end of the day after he was uh, out of politics that, you know, if I, if I had thought about making decisions based on whether I was going to get re-elected or, again, I wouldn't have made those decisions. I did what I thought was right for Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, you raise a very good point. Uh, when you look at leadership today, our politics is so polarized. Uh, parties obviously have always been grand coalitions, but today it's very hard to keep A, coalitions together, or B, even have a conversation from somebody from a different party. What lesson, uh, what great lesson do you think politicians of today should learn from Mr. Mulroney? What, what, what do you think uh, perhaps was his greatest talent or advice you think he'd give to politicians of today? Because we are so polarized today, whether it's left-wing, right-wing, or even within a conservative movement or a liberal movement, people don't always seem to agree, don't want to listen to the other side, dismissive of the other side. Uh, what lessons do you think we can learn from Mr. Mulroney's leadership? He built what he called the Grand Alliance, and he had to bring all of those um, f- factions in Canada, all of those cultures, those, um, you know, the, when we talk about the cultures of Canada, it's it's multicultural country with a lot of immigrants, but also the, the regional cultures of Canada. And he understood that better than almost anybody else that I've ever met. He came out to British Columbia and he could understand what the issues were in British Columbia. And he knew on the north shore of the St. Lawrence in, in Upper Quebec what the issues were. And he could go to Newfoundland and he could speak to the fishermen in Newfoundland and understand what their issues were. He understood the magic of Canada. He always talked about that grand alliance of bringing the East and West together, French and English together, immigrants and, and people that were born in Canada together, the, the, the First Nations people, people from the North and, and, and people that are in, in working class families together with those people that are in business. He was the great broker of bringing people together. Remember his, his career before being in politics was uh, basically negotiating union contracts for companies and for unions and bringing people together at a table and coming to some settlement on an agreement for workers. And, you know, he learned those skills of how you bring together people with different interests and you, how you get them to understand those interests of each other and, and find common ground. Could a Brian Mulroney succeed today with our polarized politics? I think it would be more difficult for him. Um, and the polarized politics, I believe, comes from a different world of how we communicate. Digital technology has cleaved our society. Um, there's no such thing as broadcasters. Now there's narrow casters. I think it's a very different landscape that you're dealing with in, in, in public affairs and public leadership today than when um, Brian Mulroney was prime minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, uh, you work so closely with Mr. Mulroney, and as you said, you talk to him at least twice a year, if not more. I really appreciate you making time for us uh, on this show and our listeners as well uh, here at CKNW. Thank you so much. Thank you. Canada's 18th Prime Minister, uh, who steered the country through some very difficult times, nationally and globally, uh, has died. He was 84 years old. Uh, Here's a report from Global National. 
Mulroney assembled progressive conservatives, Quebecers and Westerners together into a political force, the only conservative leader in a hundred years to win back-to-back -back majorities. National unity, one Canada. The consummate deal-maker, Mulroney would undertake two great negotiations, to bring Quebec into the Constitution and to bring about free trade with the United States. But at home, deal-making could not bring about national unity. The Meech Lake Accord and the Charlottetown Referendum, both failures. Mulroney's conservative coalition splintered. Quebec nationalists, led by Lucien Bouchard, broke away. Western conservatives, like Stephen Harper, left to support the new Reform Party with Preston Manning. Mulroney retired only months before his party, under Kim Campbell, suffered the greatest political collapse in Canadian history. Eric Sorensen, Global News. Thanks to Eric Sorensen for that report. And as Eric said, uh, Mr. Mulroney was a gifted public speaker uh, and he was involved in, in incredible stories, incredible policies as well. He introduced the national sales tax, raised funds to deal with the ballooning budget deficit, stood strongly against racial apartheid in South Africa, obviously pushed for constitutional reforms, some successful, some not. Uh, he's probably best known, in my opinion, certainly, as the man who brokered a free trade deal with the United States, which is highly controversial. In fact, in a debate with Liberal leader John Turner for the 88 uh, election. Uh, it was a heated debate. Take a listen. I happen to believe that you've sold us out. I happen to believe that once you... Mr. Any, Turner, just, 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 just one, one second. second. Once any you nation, do, not, you do once, not have a monopoly what, on patriotism. What, what, and I resent what, the fact that your implication that only you are a Canadian. I, I want to you. tell you that once, I come from a Canadian once, family and once, I love Canada. And that's any, why I did it, to promote prosperity. Country, and don't you impugn my motives. Once Don't a country you my yields or anyone investment. else's. Once a country yields its its energy. We have not Once done Once a it. country yields its agriculture. Wrong Once again. Once a country opens its. I, I get chills still listening to uh, uh, that debate. Uh, gives you a sense of what was on the line um, for our country uh, during that debate. Well, our next guest uh, knew Brian Mulroney very well. Jason Germain was uh, president of the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada in the 1980s and was elected uh, to a seat in the Canadian House of Commons in 1983 uh, through a by-election on the same day that Brian Mulroney was elected. He was re-elected in 1984 and served as National Caucus Chair, uh, then as Minister of State for Transport and later as Minister of State for Forestry as well. He was appointed to the Senate in June of 1993. Uh, Jerry St. Germain, thank you so much for your time today, sir. Thank you, Jez. Uh, this is a historic loss for the country. Mm hmm but it is a huge, huge personal loss, loss for me and my family. Lost a good, loyal, brilliant friend. When did you last speak to Mr. Mulroney? I spoke to him about a month ago, maybe three weeks ago. I had a call in to him the day before yesterday because I had heard that... Uh, he uh, his health. He was being challenged with health problems, and uh, I placed a call, and I never received a response, which was exceptional because he always called me back. And uh, but I guess health uh, his health didn't allow him to do it, and uh, I just I got the bad news this afternoon. He was your boss. What was it like working with him in the 1980s uh, with that large, large majority, uh, a leader who wanted to do big things? What, what, what was it like just being part of that party, 
that caucus, that cabinet? The, the strangest Part of Brian Mulroney is how some people visualize him as this real, tough, hard, non-relenting individual. And yet he was one of the kindest men I've ever worked with and one of the most brilliant. And uh, I happened, you know, he took people like myself from a small Métis community, an indigenous person married to a girl from Winnipeg who came from absolute poverty mm-hmm. and took us right to the top with him. And uh, it was that kindness that most people missed in the man. And I can remember in 1985 when we were dealing with the indigenous peoples that is so dominant, uh, prominent and dominant today in our news, he offered the, uh, all the First Nations self-governments. And at the time, they refused it. This, the man was genuinely a great Canadian. Uh, in regards to doing big things, you, you were talking about self-government. We were talking about, uh, you know, taking a stand against South Africa's apartheid government. Yeah. You know, even, you know, <laughs> introducing a national sales tax. That's not going to make you popular. Privatizing some crown corporations. What drove him at its core in your mind? Because you saw him behind the scene. You worked with him. What at its core drove him every day? He wanted to be remembered for what the good things he did, not the not the the good things most politicians think they're going to gain prominence on by just uh, speaking. Mm-hmm. And he had always said that if you do the right thing, you're most likely going to pay an expensive political cost, and that was the GST and uh, the free trade agreement. And I know that he came from a working man's background. And his father and uh, all of them were, were working people. They weren't elitists. They weren't uh, the bourgeoisie. They were hardworking Canadians. And he, was, he came from one of those families. Hmm. Uh, in the last uh, probably two and a half weeks, I've been incredibly fortunate to speak to Mr. Polyev, um, uh, leader of the Conservative Party, uh, spoke to Prime Minister Trudeau uh, just the other week. Uh, Jagmeet Singh joined us uh, last week as well. And each one has a different political style. But we definitely, when you speak to them, you realize, that, you know, once again, you're reminded that we're in a very polarized political environment today. Could a Brian Mulroney, uh, with his skills, uh, be successful in, in this era? I believe so. Uh, I believe that if he was to have emerged on the scene at, at this particular time, he was a great communicator, and uh, he had the ability, he had a presence equal to none, as did uh, other former prime ministers like uh, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Mm-hmm. But Mulroney had a presence. He walked in the room and everybody, everything stopped. And it wasn't because he was he just he just had that presence. And uh, as I say, to be fair, I know other politicians that have had it, and I know a lot of politicians that don't have not had it. <laughs> but it was that presence and his ability to uh, convey, communicate with people, and he had a real interest in people. I can recall when I was his caucus chairman, we had 211 members of parliament. Yeah, and he, it, it, and I was with him uh, virtually day, day and night 
uh, in, in so, uh, some weeks when we were back in Ottawa. And he was phoning. It, anything happened to an MP's wife or husband or child, he was there. He would p- drop everything to do that. And, uh, you know, his, uh, the strength of him, the, life is really about relationships. And he had the art of developing relationships. Mm-hmm. I recall in, uh, when the Americans put the uh, tariff on shakes and shingles, mm-hmm. we dealt together, him and I in his office, phoned the President Ronald Reagan. He took the call. And uh, we, we worked out a solution that saved that industry. And uh, it was because of the strong relationships he had built with Reagan and with others. Sometimes um, political leaders in Ottawa are, are always accused of not understanding British Columbia or knowing nothing about British Columbia. It's always about Ontario and Quebec. That's generally the mindset sometimes out here in British Columbia. What were what was sort of his feelings and thoughts about British Columbia because you worked so closely with him? I'd love to hear what he thought of our province. Well, you know, unfortunately we've lost Pat Kearney. But, you know, he... He thought a lot of the, of, uh, of our uh, area, mm-hmm. and uh, but you know these accusations have been made time after time, and I know the MPs from out here, and I know the some of the MPs today, Liberals, NDPers, and and all of them mm-hmm. that are totally committed, and yet they suffer from the same criti- uh, criticisms about oh well, the government only thinks about Ontario, Quebec. But they don't. I can assure you of that. I can recall when I became a cabinet minister, the first thing he did, Jerry, what do we need? I talked to the uh, the uh, the BC Premier at the time. We built the uh, uh, the natural gas pipeline to uh, Vancouver Island. It was one of the first things we did. We uh, we put money into Triumph, uh, into the high tech at, uh, at UBC, mm-hmm. and we devolved the airports. You know, these were and. Uh, Vancouver was the first airport that we did. Well, Jerry, uh, I really appreciate you making time for for me and for our audience today. We've lost a a great political leader. Really appreciate you sharing your, your time and your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for the interview. A Toronto-based research team met with and surveyed some 10,000 Canadians about the state of the healthcare system, and what they found is deep dissatisfaction and frustration with primary care as the country grapples with a severe shortage of family doctors. It's one of the most comprehensive surveys ever conducted uh, on Canadians' views of the health system, and it provides crucial data on the poor state of primary care access in a growing and aging country. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the study is Goldus Mitra, the Our Care BC lead and clinical assistant professor at UBC. Uh, Dr. Mitra, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. What are the core findings in this survey, which is uh, a massive survey that's been done? Uh, what are the core findings for you? So Our Care is the largest ever initiative to engage Canadians about their experiences with primary care and really understand the steps we need to take today to make sure that people can access health care, the health care they need now and far into the future. Um, and the Our Care process, you know, over the last 16 months, we've asked citizens from coast to coast and every walk of life 
to tell us about their experiences trying to navigate our primary care system, and we asked them what we can do better. Um, so in the fall of 2022, our research team heard from over 9,000 Canadians in a survey about their experiences, but then we also did a deep dive into multiple provinces to better understand the issues. Um, in BC, we engaged almost 100 people in really deep dialogues to better understand their experiences and understand the challenges and opportunities to improve the health system. Um, and, you know, in the report we released this week, um, we summarized what we found and really described the R-Care standard. Um, you know, when people in Canada told us how they wanted to see the healthcare system transformed, their biggest priorities, I think not surprisingly, were solving the attachment crisis. Um, we heard stories of people losing their family doctors and being unable to find another for years, especially if they were marginalized, lower income, or had complex chronic health conditions. Um, people really wanted us to focus on expanding team-based care and expanding publicly funded virtual care. Um, and there was also a big focus in their priorities on ensuring care they're receiving is equitable, um, and includes coverage for prescription medications, mental health, dental, and eye care. The uh, I just want to talk about family doctors just for a second. You talked a lot of, about a lot of priorities for, for citizens. The core issue mm-hmm. for, for, for for a citizen at this point is still access to that family doctor. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that what's driving the, the core frustration? I think it is driving the core frustration. Um, I think many people across the country are unable to find a family doctor. Across Canada, it's one in five people who responded to our survey didn't have a family doctor or nurse practitioner, but there were actually huge differences by region. So um, people in BC were actually most likely to report they didn't have a family doctor or NP. There was, that was approximately 27%. And this is compared to other places in Canada, you know, in Ontario, 13, only 13% of people didn't have a family doctor. Uh, the other issue uh, is you look at other countries, uh, the UK, Norway, the Netherlands, Finland, what are they doing with public systems that we aren't doing? Why are they more successful? I'm not saying they're perfect. They have their challenges as well. But when it comes to access to primary care, they seem to, doing it, they seem to be doing it better than us here in Canada. I hear you. Um, I think in many of those countries, they've oriented um, a lot of the funding and the structure of the system to better support primary care. We know that primary care is the entryway into our system, um, and there's good research to show that systems that really value primary care and do um, and 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 provide really high quality, robust. Um, primary care that is accessible to their citizens have better overall health outcomes. And I think um, much of what we heard from the citizens who engaged with the R care process, um, a lot of it got distilled into the R care standard, which we really think are a set of principles that mm-hmm. will guide Canada and guide the BC primary care system. Um, to look much more like some of those high-quality primary care systems in other parts of the world. Um, w- when I uh, was going through the report, and, it, you know, there was talk of, you know, we, we, we can't deal with incremental improvements. We need significant improvements. Uh, at its core, is this going to be a, sort of a national and obviously a provincial f- focus 
on just getting out there and hiring more nurses and doctors? That means looking in other jurisdictions around the world? Um, I think so. I mean, I think our government's really made historic investments into primary care, um, first with a one-of-a-kind new funding model in BC that's been really successful in both keeping doctors in practice and recruiting net new family doctors into office practice. We've also um, recently announced a new program to support team-based care in the province where doctors can hire nurses into their offices. But I think governments can really go further. Um, I think one really important step um, here in BC, um, and we're asking for uh, governments to adopt and endorse the R Care standard. Um, but also, we're hoping they can um, provide targeted investments in certain areas. One of those is team based care, mm -hmm. others are in community health centers, but also interoperability of our health systems and improved patient access to records. Uh, the issue, uh, you're talking about team-based care. Um, do, do you think we are actually responding well as, as a federal government, but more importantly, because health is a provincial matter, mm -hmm. that we're actually fundamentally tackling this? I mean, governments change, and I get that. Uh, but there seems to be mm -hmm. an underlying frustration from the public that I've never seen in regards to our healthcare system. They all value a public system, but they also see the fundamental flaws of this public system. Uh, do you think that we're finally getting to that point where government is understanding the heavy lifting that's going to be required moving forward in regards to dealing with this? Yeah. Um, I've heard from both the federal government a huge focus on primary care and better supporting primary care. Um, we've recently had um, promises for investments in long-term care and elder care. And I think that's a huge step forward in BC. As I said, um, we've had significant and I think historic investments in a new funding model and, um, and in team-based care. And even with the R care process, the Ministry of Health was one of our stakeholders and was there listening to the citizens during our priority panels, um, really hearing their stories and working to understand their priorities. Um, can they go further? Absolutely. Um, I'll give you an example with team-based care. So now that doctors can actually hire nurses into their offices, I think that's going to be a huge game changer. But you can imagine where you have a scenario where doctors haven't necessarily worked with nurses in their office practices before. They may not have the skills and workflows to ensure that they're really working efficiently and effectively in ways that would increase their office capacity, right, and their mm -hmm. team capacity to take on more patients off of those wait lists. And so what do we need? I think we'd really benefit here in BC from a provincial organization to help train doctors and nurses in how to best work together in a primary care team, similar to organizations that exist in other places like Ontario. Well, it was a, f a fantastic report, uh, and I'm still trying to get through all of it, but I really appreciate you making time for us today because it is such a vital uh, part to, uh, of just government and people's reliance and, and taking care of people, more importantly. But uh, most importantly, it's improving a system that we all deeply care about. So, Dr. Mitra, thank you so much for your time today.
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.